Welcome to a brand new series of our plant stories. Plants do tell stories. They tell us stories about the people who grew them, the places we find them, and the reasons we love them. Our Plant Stories is a podcast where those stories are shared. Penn Allen contacted me last year after hearing the first series of the podcast. And so it was I found myself on a rock, literally a rock, that was once a garden in the Lake District, open in 1919 to the public, but no more. It was the early morning as Penn and I scrambled up the rock, searching for paths and steps now overgrown, taking us to the foot of Luffrig Fell. We're above the rooftop of White Crags, and as we look out... We've got Windermere stretching away, slightly buried in the rising mist. Um, the treetops, you can just see old Brathy and Brathy Hall through the treetops. Ambleside, we can't see now because the trees are so overgrown, but just off down to our left. And I mean, you just feel as though you're on top of the world. Five years ago, on a wet October afternoon, Penn Allen sat down and began to read her great-grandmother's diaries. It has led her on an extraordinary journey, resulting in a book called The Lost Garden of Luffrig. I'll put all the details on the website, ourplantstories.com. But even before the diaries and letters and the book, there was a plant memory. So welcome to Penn's Viburnum. And you emailed me, which was lovely because you'd heard the podcast and you had a plant story. And that was unbelievably exciting to me. And you said it was about a viburnum. And I wanted to know why is there a viburnum that is important to you that you knew about as a child? One of my very earliest memories, I should think I was probably seven or eight, was on a frosty winter's day with my mum, who was a a great gardener, picking flowers to put inside um, and stopping beside a huge bush that was in full flower in a a winter garden that was sort of nude of, of everything else and being overwhelmed by the smell of it, the scent of it, and saying to my mum as she was snipping away with her with her scissors, what's that lovely smell? And she said, oh, that's a viburnum, that's a viburnum fragrance. And then alongside that, I've always had a sort of misty understanding that my family's history was in some way connected with plant hunters and that my great-grandfather had sponsored an expedition but it was all very misty and very cloudy and it wasn't until sort of probably almost 60 years later <laughs> that events started to unfold and the importance of the viburnum in the story began to show itself and sort of helped me really I suppose connect the dots um, and find out what was important in the story to me as well. So we're standing in a garden 
we're a stone's throw from Lake Windermere, perhaps a little bit more than a stone's throw. We've come off the road, you drive up a long drive, you come to a beautiful white house, arts and craft house, which is literally sitting at the bottom of Loughrigg Fell. Tell me how your family is connected to this house. Well, my great-grandmother, Alice Huff, as she was married, Redmayne as she was born, was born and raised at Brathy Hall, which is, again, a stone's throw from here. She married and moved off with her husband to Derby to raise a family, but never lost her love for the place that she'd been raised in. And when the opportunity came for them in 1903, they moved back to Ambleside. They found a plot of land. They managed to commission arts and crafts architect Dan Gibson. And between them, they built this exquisite, I mean simply exquisite, house uh, halfway up a craggy fell with a just stupendous view over Windermere and also overlooking Alice's former home. We look from the garden across to Brathy Hall where she was raised. So a very special place for both of them, I think. And when they have finished building it, who moves in? Who's living here? Alice and Harry move in and they move in in September of 1904 with their three daughters. Harry's a well-reputed surgeon and he travels all over the country performing operations and things, but he also has a surgery that he runs from Ambleside and he does consultations from his from his library in the house. <laughs> and... You know, you're sort of talking early 1900s in Ambleside with all um, the local social scene, the movers and the shakers, the Canon Rawnsley, Beatrix Potter, the Armit sisters, a hugely influential group of poets and social reformers, and and they were just in the, absolutely in the heart of that. You know, the, one day it was tea somewhere another day it would be a tennis tournament at Rydal Hall and another day it would be a ball in the assembly rooms in Ambleside you know they really they had a golden life it was that era I suppose and Alice was a gardener yes Alice you need to remember that you know you're on a sort of wild craggy fell side um, rock volcanic rock the size of you know <laughs> let your imagine run wild and you still not got there and you can only really imagine the feat of beginning to clear this by by hand so she's a mother she has three daughters three daughters yeah the eldest Maud the middle one my grandmother Marjorie and then the youngest Dorothy who sort of carried the gardening gene I think <laughs> But then, and when I read your book, there was an audible gasp from me when this happened. Tragedy hits, doesn't it? Yes, they'd only been in the house for about five years, living their, their sort of golden life of regattas on Windermere and, you know, very settled, very happy, quietly developing the garden. And Alice falls ill. And within several days, she dies of a combination of pneumonia and meningitis. And 
pulls the rug really from everybody's feet. The story for me was recorded in the diaries that Alice kept so meticulously for, I think I've got about 25 years worth of them. And she maintains the diaries until she becomes ill. And then there's about two or three days blank. And then in his hand, he takes over her writing her diary. And in his hand, he writes at 6.30, she passed peacefully to her rest. And he continues then for the next probably five or so years to maintain her diary, not quite as meticulously as she had, but he continues to record then the development of the garden from there. So this is where we, I suppose, move to the rock, because Alice has died, the family are obviously grieving... They then somehow turn their energies to the rock itself, which they haven't really worked on before in such a way. They clear it, they start to plant on it, and we'll put some pictures because you need to see the rock. You can't actually see the rock anymore, let's be honest. We're looking at the rock, <laughs> it's, but it's actually... It's a little bit overgrown. It's a little bit overgrown, <laughs> and they start to plant... But there's another person who comes into the story at this point, isn't there? Because they get help from Will Purdom. Tell me about Will. How does he become part of the story? Yes, well, this, I mean, that, I suppose, is where the story goes from being a personal family history to a story that has a national interest, really. So Alice had been born and raised at Brathy Hall, which is just across the road, and her... A uh, family's gardener was William Purdom Sr. So Will Purdom, plant hunter as we know him, was born... He wasn't actually born at um, Brathy Lodge, but they moved here when he was a very, very small. And he worked alongside his father at Brathy Hall until he was 18. Then he disappeared off to Kew, and in the, in the middle of all that excitement, Alice died. Harry, who was just completely heartbroken, I mean, he had lost the love of his life. The the passion, the heartbreak in the diaries is hard to describe without reading them. Um, but he sets himself to clear the rock as a monument to the wife that he's loved and lost. And in 1912, Alice had died in 1909. In 1912, Will comes back from his first solo expedition and he comes back and he's in quite a bad way. He had been sent off to China, sponsored by um, Veitch and the Arnold Arboretum, and he was sort of following slightly in the footsteps of Ernest Wilson, who'd previously gone to the same part of China and Ernest Wilson had been sent out with lots of money and lots of backing and he'd come back with huge plant finds and he was greatly feted um, he was a sort of national hero Will had been sent out with not really the resources or the finances and he'd had a very tough time uh, unknown and on his own and had come back, I mean, he did bring 
plants back, but not in the same quantities. And it was all a bit, he, he was injured whilst he was away, he'd broken his leg whilst he was away. And he came back in 1912 and he was a bit of a downcast fellow and he came back to Ambleside just at the point as Harry was starting to develop the rock and the two of them, Harry with his broken heart trying to create something that he wanted to sort of mark the passing of his beloved wife and Will battered and broken from not having had a fantastic time and you know, feeling very lost, I think, and physically in quite a bad way, set to with Harry in the garden here at White Crags. And my grandfather writes of sort of, you know, filthy day, building steps with Will in the garden. He notes various plants that Will has has put in for him. You know, I think he gave Will a free hand um, and was just constantly inspired by him and does will discover the viburnum on his first trip to china no, do we well, know well there you are you see so now she's now she's got to the nub of it um yes he does and it is it, it is recorded that he found it on his first solo trip but because apparently he found it in private grounds i think it was in a, a monastery garden he was not able to attribute it to his expedition. But I believe, and I think the evidence supports, that he brought seeds back to White Crags and that they got them going together. Uh, there is evidence in the diary that this, this viburnum was given to Harry before Will went on his second expedition. So it was never attributed to Will, and then when subsequently, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but he subsequently went back to China uh, with uh, Reginald Farrer on their joint expedition and found uh, the Viburnum again together and it was brought back with them jointly and it is classified as Viburnum Farrerite, my eternal chagrin. <laughs> Penn's great-grandfather, Harry, introduced Will to Reginald Farrer, another plant hunter who was an expert in alpines. Farrer, born at Inglewood Hall in Yorkshire, and Purdom, the son of a gardener in Ambleside, were from very different social classes, and you can hear more about their expedition in a forthcoming offshoot episode. What Penn has are letters, sent from Will in China to Harry at Whitecrags. Along with three other Lakeland gardeners, Harry had helped to sponsor the trip. At that time, no one questioned the ethics of gathering plants from other countries. Plant hunters were admired as adventurers. Now, understandably, there are protocols with strict regulations about what can be collected and for what purpose, ensuring the activity is not resonant of any exploitation or imperialism. Kew at that time were just developing a rock garden at Wisley. They put some money in. My great-grandfather got a group of local Lakeland gardeners together and they each put in £25, which to their, <laughs> to their shock they were asked to repeat for a second year. <laughs> uh, and then after Will leaves, he begins to correspond regularly with 
uh, my great-grandfather. The letters describe how difficult Will found Farrow, which has never been recorded anywhere else. You know, it's sort of shining a bit of light onto how Will felt about that relationship. Um, He talks quite a lot. He mentions, you know, uh, found a a super hellebore. We'll be going back to get seeds from that. He talks quite a lot about that sort of thing. He talks about how much he misses the rock. He always finishes virtually each letter I think you know send my regards to the rock has the mechanopsis flowered you know uh, the closeness you can feel the closeness you can feel the um, just just feel the bond that they had I was going to say it shows real trust that he had in your great grandfather doesn't it that he reveals that much that he that he talks about the the problems and the difficulties in very, that way. Very much so and he does, you know, in one or two of the letters he says, of course, this is just between you and I, you know, you won't but, but the man is insufferable but don't, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> I love the image in your book of the three girls really excited when those letters arrive and they contain seeds. My gr- grandmother who was the middle one of the three daughters uh, left a, um, a sort of oral archive, if you like, and she describes them sorting the seeds on the dining room table and dividing them up to give to share between the various sponsors. We used to get packets of seeds from Will, who we were all very fond of. He was really a friend. And we all sat round the dining room table and hardly dare breathe in case we blew the seeds away <laughs> and divided them up into equal quantities. Yes. And Will Purdom, who knew the garden so well, used to write little notes to my father and say that so-and-so mentioning the special plant would be a good place to put it and tell him where it would grow well because he knew the garden so well. So, Pen, we've climbed up the garden, literally, (laughs) scrambled through quite a lot of trees and bushes. But we've come to what you call the shrine. Describe to me what we are looking at, because it's rather special, isn't it? Yes, it it is rather special. Um, The the shrine was just a bit of the garden that has... It's got huge volcanic rock crags. Um, And a little corner was created that was known as the shrine um, and on it there's an awful lot that that isn't here that used to be here it's a lot, lot of it sort of broken and fallen down very derelict very sad but still standing is a stone rough hewn carved with the initials of um, well a handful of people who were very important to the place and to the garden um, Right at the top is Alice Maud Huff, my great-grandmother, um, followed by Charles Henry Huff, my great-grandfather, and the dates of their deaths. Um, and then there are other family members, nanny features. Um, and then second from the bottom is Will P. Um, so his place, it's, it's just inscribed WP 1921. Um, and I think just confirms, lest there was any doubt, his his 
important place in amongst the family, amongst the garden, in the place, in the lakes. Um, you know, he's he's marked marked with the family. And he doesn't he he dies in China. He he never comes back following his uh, second expedition. He never actually comes back to England. He was intending to to come home um, and then was recontracted, I think, by the Chinese government. Um, And he died in China after a short illness. Um, And not long after Harry received news that Will had died in China, a packet of seeds arrived at White Crags from Will. Um, Prunus humilis, I think, um, along with a little handwritten note from Will describing the charm of the plant and how to grow it in the garden. Um, (laughs) Can only imagine, really, (laughs) the, the poignancy of that. I don't know where it is, the, the prunus, but you know, I'm sure it will have been propagated and it will be in the garden somewhere. Um, but no, you know, they were clearly profound friends and it's lovely that uh, a sort of firm record has been left and, and that we've been all able to tie all the bits together, I think that's the thing. I think you can sense Penn's fascination with Will Purdom, whose work is less documented than many of the other, more famous Victorian plant hunters. Their introduction of thousands of plants to Britain represent a legacy of empire that should be talked about more. When Penn and I were making this episode, it was clear she was still seeking to understand what drove Will Purdom, often to quite dangerous places, in pursuit of a plant. By chance, I had recently visited Lullingstone Castle and met Tom Hart Dyke, who in his 20s spent nine months as a hostage, captured while trying to cross the Darien Gap in Colombia, seeking out orchids. Tom's wild garden at Lullingstone Castle was sketched in his notebook when he thought he was going to die at the hands of his captors. So I brought Penn and Tom together and asked Penn what she would like to ask him. Well, I suppose I'd like to ask him what on earth makes you want to cross the world to seek out something that you might never find. You know, are you motivated by the plants? Are you motivated by the adventure? Um, what, what on earth set you off? For me, it's a combination of what you have said. For me, number one, it's the plants. The thought of discovering a new species of plant or a new variety or cultivar or seeing in the wild uh, a natural hybrid that no one has ever seen before to introduce as ornamental as possible this particular plant to introduce to the Western world is a real buzz for me. But it is that adventurous uh, side to it. You never quite know when you're getting on a plane or in other cases ships and so on or on foot or with your donkey or with your horse you never quite know what's going to happen but it's that thing of seeing plants in the wild to also improve your husbandry back home what conditions are these plants growing in the soil the altitude how cold is it what's the uv light like can you improve your husbandry back home by seeing plants in the wild and you invariably can it's absolutely fascinating to me that, you know, for anybody could 
just sort of think and feel the way that you do have you have you stopped adventuring now or do you still head off and if you do how how is it different from it from because I know in in Will's day you know they well first of all they were they were sponsored or he especially was sponsored for both his uh, expeditions to China um, and you know, sort of equipment and travel and all these sort of things. I mean, it must be vastly different now. What what would you have to go through if you wanted to set off <laughs> and head to China? If you could get permission to collect from China and back here in the UK, so the hosts and the country you're bringing back the plants to, I should say seed only, I should stress, and no plants, no soil, no herbarium specimens in my case. I'm just an amateur enthusiast who loves to plant hunt. So it is seed only. You have to record everything that you want to collect before you've even left terra firma in the UK. So to answer your question fully with the the world garden that we've been developing here at Lullingston over the years, most plants now are donated to us uh, through Wakehurst Place, uh, through Kew Gardens at the Millennium Seed Bank in West Sussex. And they donate lots of expeditions that they've officially arranged and organised abroad to bring back plants, usually in seed form. And they've got excess surplus of things that they've germinated and we get uh, donated those. And we get donated nearly 90% of our 7,000 different types of plants we've got here are donated. So I actually haven't got to go abroad to collect because it's all coming to me. So I haven't actually got to do that. So I tend to now go abroad and just take pictures, observe things in the wild to improve my my, my, my knowledge of growing these plants back home. And actually, indeed, for talks and things, yes, I go abroad to give talks and to come back and so on. But actually collecting now, I haven't done for, for many years. Yeah, the other thing that I think sort of fascinates me about the character of a plant hunter if you like is that you clearly you've got to have such vim and such a sense of adventure but you've also got to have a a slightly sort of scientific mind that will you know the classifying I mean in in Will's day the 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 logging and the Everything had to be documented and numbered and parceled and sent back. And to sort of imagine that in the middle of nowhere, sometimes, I mean, I understand that he climbed as high as sometimes 10,000 feet without any real equipment or anything like that. You know, the sort of precision that you must have to have. It just strikes me that you must be a very particular calibre of person to have those two sides in your nature. The, the, the tunnel vision that you've got to have to go on a plant hunting trip you, you are blinkered and William would have been the same you have to be you've got to be fairly selfish a lot of plant hunters travelled on their own and I'm very similar to that I often am, am quite selfish I don't want to feel like I'm holding somebody up or they're holding me up. I want to go there on my own, use the local knowledge if applicable and go and find this plant and get the results. And the adventure that goes along with it is a byproduct of it. And William would have had, he was born with it, I suspect, one of his genes, tunnel vision genes (laughs) into the world of plants, inspired by his dad. He was a head gardener as well, wasn't he? He he was, yeah. Have you got any of Will Purdom's plants in the world garden, Tom, at the moment. It's 
embarrassed to say that the viburnum i haven't and the poplar i've lost so what i've got to do is go and get some things from williams uh, collections the only reason why i'm justifying it here i haven't is the space we are completely a full hotel of plants here so what i'm going to have to do is in the arboretum shrub area i want to try that poplar again uh, it's a lovely thing that the poplar and i want to try and get a plant by him that with his name or not in it something he introduced in the arboretum area that viburnum sounds absolutely tantalizing especially with the story that you have associated with it pen sounds great oh well if we've if we've done nothing else between us if you plant another one of those and tell a few people where he found it and what he did then i shall be a very happy bunny In China, there is a Purdom Memorial Forest Park and Museum. And if that sounds intriguing, listen out for a Viburnum offshoot episode coming soon. It's also the story of how another Lakeland gardener, intrigued at the Purdom name on a garden bench, began a quest to find out more, which led her eventually to China. These podcasts always end with us learning how to grow the plant in the story. When Penn and I were in the Lake District recording this episode, we went to Wholeherd Gardens. These gardens are maintained by volunteers now, but back in Harry's time, the owners were in the Funders Syndicate, so receiving seeds from Will Purdom. They have a viburnum fragrance, and Alan Oatway, garden coordinator at Wholeherd, knows how to take care of it. Would it be easy to buy one, first of all? It's not widely available. Um, there are two forms available, the standard form in pink of flowers and a form called candissimum, which is white, um, which is slightly dwarfer. Um, but they are available if, if one searches around and uh, good old Google will help with that. Um, and then in terms of how to grow, I think there are two things that I'd suggest to start with. One is... is get your money's worth out of the nurseryman that supplies it to you and ask their advice and second is to to consider where it grew naturally and um, northern china which is the source of viburnum fragrance uh, in this case um, is well known for its uh, cool winters and uh, also for its moist summers so the, the mountain climate uh, in china um, Yes, summer days when the sun is out will be quite warm, so the plant can survive the warmth, but um, invariably will have moisture at its roots for most of the time. So in the absence of any other knowledge, those are the two things I'd start with. So when does it flower? I think further south it would flower much earlier than it does here, but we're looking at January, February as the time that we would have the lovely perfumed flowers uh, as something to look at in the winter garden. Could you put it in a pot? I personally wouldn't. Um, I think I've admitted before I'm, I, I'm, I'm a particular sort of gardener and pots need a lot of maintenance in terms of watering. And having said this, this grows in, a, in an area um, in China where the, the moisture is pretty much assured, uh, I would hesitate to, to pot bound it. What enables someone to have their name added to a plant name? 
connections with the botanist who publishes the original description. Um, the botanist has a lot of power at that time. It, the description has a very uh, precise requirement on how it's, it's set out in that, uh, that you have the herbarium specimen to, re to refer to, you have a Latin description uh, which the taxon taxonomist will write and, and then an English translation and if it's not been named before the, the taxonomist really might take advice from peers but can provide the name. Those names don't always last. Later studies might show that that plant was actually the same as one that was previously named and then the previous name takes precedence. Um, other, otherwise, such as, as with um, Reginald Farrer, he clearly made a lot of the fact that it was his expedition and he was uh, he was in charge of it, and so the botanists would defer and put Farrer's name on the on the plants that they were describing. And it's always a Latin ending to that, a Farii or Pedomii? A Latinized name, yes, and, and the tendency has moved away from putting people's names on anyway, uh, but referring to the area that the plants come from um, is the modern style, but yes, the the common language of botany is to use Latin uh, because there are no common names for plants that are newly discovered. So even those names give us an inkling to when in history they were collected because the fact that people attach the names of the plant hunters Latinized but to the plants is part of that story in a way. It is indeed. So you'll see many Wilsonii's and Wardii's for Kingdon Ward and Forestii's for George Forrest. Um, but if you look at the later discoveries, and amazingly in this world, discoveries are still being made every year, um, then there will be, I think we walked past Geranium Shensiensi on the way up to the bed here. And Geranium Shensiensi is named for Shensi, the, the province of China where Purdon was collecting. In 1929, Penn's great-grandfather wrote a book called A Westmoreland Rock Garden, and Penn had a copy of it in her coat pocket. He says at the end, or sort of towards the end of the book, he says, and now we must take our leave. Although we may never, to our knowledge, have met each other in the flesh, I feel sure, sorry, I'm getting emotional, I feel sure that in the spirit, as garden lovers, we shall have wandered together through this little paradise with mutual pleasure. And I just feel when I read that, that that, that hand, there's something about gardens that can stretch a hand like that across, down you know they just have an ability don't they to create these sort of links between people I mean you know I never met him but I feel as though I did um, and it's so sad that the garden is going to rack and ruin it's so sad that the house is going to rack and ruin but between his little book and my book hopefully they won't ever be completely forgotten. It will probably be retaken by Bracken and, you know, but but hopefully it won't be forgotten. And really that's was my motivation, I think, just to make sure that the story lived on. 
I hope you have enjoyed this first plant story of this new season. You can find more information on the website, ourplantstories.com. As a former BBC radio producer, I have always loved stories. And in this podcast, I get to combine that with a love of plants. In season one, you can hear about lost and found peonies and fig tree cuttings hidden in the hems of skirts. I love that these plants can take us on journeys. And if you have a story you'd like me to follow, then do email me, sally at ourplantstories.com. If you'd like to support this independent podcast, you can buy me a coffee on the website or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Either or both will be very welcome. You can follow me on Instagram, ourplantstories underscore podcast, or the Our Plant Stories Facebook page. Or sign up for the blog via the website, which will give you all the behind-the-scenes news on making the podcast and upcoming episodes. Our Plant Stories is produced and presented by me, Sally Flatman. <laughs>